Please turn to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8. We'll study verses 1 through 9. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. And here we pick up, we come to a section that describes Samuel after the prime years of his ministry. A man who is a father and who has served as a judge, and we encounter his sons. There's here another story of a father and two sons in the service of God over the people of Israel. And so let's read these verses of scripture and study them together. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Avijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, And show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Thus far the word of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have heard your voice in the scriptures. O Lord, as we have studied, even briefly so far, the ancient history of your people. Lord, I pray that you would confront us. O Lord, that the testimony of the worldly hearts of the people of Israel would convict us of our own worldliness, our own weakness, O Lord, and the offense that it causes against you. Help us to be holy and sanctified, a people separate and set apart. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The history of Israel is repetitive. Any student of the Bible will find certain names that repeat. Moreover, you will find certain themes that are regular throughout, and this is common when you have any sort of story, like the Bible, that is a meta-narrative that stretches, telling a whole story from one end to the next over not just many years, but many hundreds of years, in fact, many thousands. It is repetitive, or at least in some parts, but this isn't unique only to the history of the people of God. This is I think, common amongst the history of mankind. And the reason why this is, is that the single constant in all cultures, it does seem to be, not only that we have a creator, but that humans have sinned against him. And so sin forms and frames for us the things we do, and the things that we do frame history. And so we come again, and we have another story 
of a father who is faithful and who has two sons who are not themselves faithful. And this is a terrifying story, especially for me as a minister, but it is a reality that often men of God see their progeny, their sons, live to be men of the world. And so this passage is about worldliness. It's not just about the history of Samuel or about the close of his ministry, but rather the worldliness of the hearts of the people of God. And so the first thing I want us to consider is the form, the form of worldliness. What does it look like? What does it look like? And then secondly, the offense of worldliness. Who does it offend and how does it do so? The form of worldliness, the offense of worldliness. And so I've already mentioned the repetitiveness of history. And I've already mentioned that we have Samuel and his two sons here mentioned. But this also has the fourth story that we've already read and studied together. The story of Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. These men who were priests of the people of God and who supposedly and were supposed to be serving God at Bethel. And you remember the abuses. They were profaning the sacrifices of God. They were taking it for themselves from the people. And they were making the worship of the people of God primarily about themselves. And you might remember Eli, who was too afraid to offend his sons, that he was willing to offend God. And now we have Samuel. And Samuel's not like Eli. He's a different sort of guy. He was born the son of prayer. His mother wanted a son, and so she prayed, and God gave her a son. But you remember, she had a promise. The promise was, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. You give me, and I will certainly give back to you, tithing even of her children. The Lord opened the womb, and the Lord gave, and so she gave back. And he was raised as a boy priest next to this man, Eli, outshining his natural son's as he was a son devoted to God. And now we have him and his sons, Joel and Abijah. And the story repeats the faithful father and two unfaithful sons. And what we're told here in the record of Scripture is so disheartening. It cuts to the very depth of every man, every parent, and it's this. Verse 3, yet his sons did not walk in his ways. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways. What were his ways? Nearness with God. A heart for the Lord. The priority of the glory of God. His sons didn't have that. They weren't men with an abiding life of godliness. Instead... They were men who were themselves worldly. And we're told what their offense is. They're not dipping in to the sacrifices of God. No, in fact, they're not priests. They're not engaged in the sacrificial system as such. Rather, they're judges. They're something like shepherds of sheep. They're in the midst of God's people for their keeping. And we're told that these two sons are appointed by their father. And some commentators ask the question, is this an evidence of nepotism? Maybe it is because judges and the role of a judge, the office of a judge, wasn't passed down father to son. 
But nonetheless, every other employment amongst the people of Israel was. So maybe, maybe not. I would think, and I will say, because I think that the scriptures do not rebuke Samuel, nor do they charge him with any form of nepotism, that Samuel likely judged his sons who gave every evidence of righteousness, and yet who, when they were sent to Beersheba for the care of God's people, showed themselves to be unfaithful when the back of their father was turned. And their offense is what? The taking of bribes. They turned aside for gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. They acted like worldly judges. Because up until this point, amongst the people of God, the governance of God's people was, Thus saith the Lord. When people had issues, what did they do? They went to God's appointed man, to a shepherd, a man called a judge for the care of God's people. And they said, here's the issue. This is what my son did. This is what my neighbor did against me. This is what, this is what I've done against my spouse or this or that. And they would decide and they would deal with circumstances. Whether it was stealing, whether it was murder, whether it was all sorts of different crimes or offenses man to man and against God. And so there was always in view this right understanding that the offense of the sins of man are not only against other men, but also against the God of heaven who is the creator and the keeper of all humanity. And there was this theocratic, truly theocratic rule amongst the people of God. And as we read a few moments ago, Whenever the discussion comes between the Lord and Samuel, who grieves over the request for a king, the Lord says, they've not rejected you, they rejected me from being king over them. And this gives you a sense of the structure. This gives you a sense of the culture of the people of Israel. The Lord spoke and ruled as the king of his people. And at this point in the history of the world, this is profoundly unique. No other kingdom with men like judges existed. No, there were strong men who carved out a place for themselves, who would have their rule and have their pomp and circumstance and have their power and have their armies. They would rule at the request of no one and under the authority of no other. They all wanted to be a king over kings. So the people of Israel stuck out, different and distinct and sanctified. And what were they sanctified for? Well, they were sanctified by the word and the rule of God himself. And so we have the account of the response of God's people in verse 4 to the offenses of the sons of Samuel. Verse 4 we read, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And I want to say that I'm impressed. I'm an elder and I've been around elders for some time. It's not often the case that elders act as godly 
at least in part, as we see these elders operating amongst themselves. They gather together and they go to the man. This is a wonderful principle. And this shows the respect and the care that they have for Samuel, who rules over them as a judge. They call together a session meeting. It doesn't tell us that they go around and they backbite. It doesn't tell us that they attack or form up a mob or that they take the sons of Samuel in chains for their crooked and unlawful ways. No. No, they come. They meet with the man and they read a grievance and they bring a request. And that's orderly. In fact, I would say it's downright Presbyterian and it's how it ought to be. And here's their complaint and it has two parts. The first, behold, you are old. And offensive words like this have been spoken to many. But I think there's some honesty and there's no sense in which we have Samuel's offense at that complaint. They're just stating the fact. He's past the time of his being able to operate as the judge of God's people. He still is a judge. But he has subdivided the work with his sons. You are old. It's a statement of the lack of physical capacity to continue to do the work of his own. And then they bring the second complaint. And your sons do not walk in your ways, Samuel. You're not the problem. Your boys are out of control. It's not you, it's your boys. We understand you're too old to deal with it. But here is something that needs to be dealt with. And then they lay before him their request. And here is where we see, well, a unique mix. It's a mix of permissible uh, request and a mix of worldliness. They say this and request. Now appoint for us a king. Okay. To judge us like all the nations, worldliness. And you see this first piece, the request for a king, this is entirely permissible. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. And look down to verse 14. God has anticipated this. Let me remind you, you're turning back in your Bibles and also back in the history of God's people. Deuteronomy written by the hand of Moses, who was long since gone by the time of 1 Samuel. And here there's provision, and there is also prophecy mixed with the provision. Deuteronomy 17, 14, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, And you possess it and dwell in it. And then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never turn that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, 
lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." It's okay that they request a king. God's provided for it generations in advance, and prophetically so. Did you catch it? They have entered the land. They are dwelling in it. And almost as if verbatim, they say, and God uh, prophesies, I will set a king over me. The, The people saying, we want a king for ourselves, like all the nations that are around us. God says, when you say that, then I will give you a king. You see, there's this first provision. It won't be up to you. It's still God's doing. It's still God's decision. The monarch of the people of God will be a divinely appointed monarch. Period. That's God's way. So we're going good up until this point. It's okay to desire a king. The Lord expects it to happen, even if Samuel didn't seem to see it coming. But it's the second portion of the request, to judge us like all the nations. And here is where we see the form of worldliness. The first point we've been getting there. The form of worldliness. And you see the issue is, is that these men are reading the grievances of the people. They have a good complaint. It makes good sense. But the problem is is the way they try to deal with it. They're trying to fix spiritual problems by worldly means. Don't give us a king of the Lord's appointment. Don't give us a king that has a heart for God. Don't give us a king that pursues him day and night. Give us one like the nations. Like the nations. With a character that looks like the world. Give us a king that won't really stand out. Give us a king so we won't be the weird people with the judges. Give us a king so we can be a kingdom. The kingdom of Israel, not just the judgeship or whatever of the people of Israel. Give us a king who rules with pomp and circumstance and power and prestige. Give us a king that has a standing army. Give us a king with swords and spears. And if they had cannons, they would have requested those as well. Give us a king that expands borders and builds wealth. Give us a king that administrates all the needs of the people of Israel. Give us a king like the nations. They want to be indistinguishable. And as we know, according to biblical history, God gives them the worldly king they desire, and the man's soul. And we will study the downfall of his soul. We'll study all the sorts of worldliness that he brought into the midst of the people of God. But the thing that I want you to see is they didn't ask 
for a man after God's heart, a man who loved God, who was righteous, who was holy, or who would love them after the form of God's love for them. They want to be like the nations. They wanted to be, as children are known to say, they wanted to be like everybody else, to be accepted by the world, to have uniformity, to sound like the culture, dress like the culture, look like the culture, act like the culture, eat the same cultural food as the world, not distinct, indistinguishable, a kingdom amongst kingdoms, and for them to have a king amongst many kings. They didn't want to stick out. They didn't want to be the strange kid in class. They didn't want to be the unique people, that neighbor, which everybody doesn't really like. What's the problem? That's not what God calls us to. God does not call the people of Israel, nor the people of God, or the church, to be just like the world. We're called to be sanctified and set apart to be a people different who say different things, think different things, love different things, are different, dress different, act different. The whole structure of their life is different. They work differently. They love differently. They raise their children differently. They spend their Sundays differently. They spend their money differently. They're a different, distinct, awkward, peculiar people that the world just can't get around. They're like a shining light right in the eyes of the world and they just can't get around it. You've got to deal with them. Why? Because the word of God says and the Lord has commended to his people that they are to be salt and light in the world. That we're to reflect his character, his glory. And we're all the time supposed to be pointing simply to him The God who is not like the God of nations. They wanted a form of worldliness, not a form of godliness. And we read in verse 6, the reception of the request, and you can see the offense of worldliness. Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel. Of course it did. Now, again, do I think that he's sensitive about his age? Maybe, but probably not. Maybe, but probably not. Do I think that he's overwhelmed with the offense of the truth that was told about his sons? Acting like low lives, small time crooks amongst God's people. I don't think so, and I also don't think that he's surprised. I think that he feels the heavy weight of it according to an entirely different offense. So read with me. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And the thing that reveals the offense is where Samuel turns. And this shows his godliness. Because it seems as if he doesn't answer them in their request. In fact, the text doesn't say to us. But it seems as if he said, I've heard your request Give me some time and we'll meet again. Because what we're told is that he prayed to the Lord. We're not told his prayer. I wish we were. When we're in glory, if I have any concern for any of this, I want to ask him, what did you pray? Give me a prayer outline. I'm really curious. Because he's cut to the heart. 
that, that much is at least plain. It's the Lord's response that shows to us some of the outlines, some of the offense. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. The first sense of it for God's servant is the feeling of rejection. That the shepherd feels rejected and hated by the sheep. That's relatable. As a pastor, that's relatable. It's not hard to understand at all. But you see, it's not just an offense against Samuel. We've already said that again and again, and it's because of what God has said here. The offense is against someone entirely different. It's an offense against God. For they have not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them. They've rejected God. That's the Lord's response to the request of the people. He says, Samuel, you just do exactly what they tell you to do. You're my man, but I give you freedom. You, you, you deal gently. You hear their complaint, and you let them do what they want. They're permitted to this. Maybe they even know the text of Scripture and this provision in Deuteronomy. They don't cite it, but this is permissible. It's not that they're rejecting you in their hearts. It's that they're rejecting me, Samuel. Don't you understand? It's not about your service as a judge. It's not even really about your children. But it's about the people of Israel being worldly. They're rejecting godliness and the form of godliness. They want the form of worldliness to look like the world and act like the world and live like the world. They're rejecting me. That's what God is saying. And that's the offense. It's not just an offense primarily, uniquely, or specifically against ministry, but against the God to whom it points. And you go on. This is not a new thing, verse 8. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Samuel, this isn't new, brother. You should have known from the very beginning. This was kind of in the job description. Even as a little kid, you should have understood. They're going to hate you. They're not going to like you any more than they've liked anybody that's come before. They're going to complain, even as they complained against Moses in the wilderness. They're going to complain. And then I'm going to give them doves, and they're going to eat it until it comes out their noses. It's going to be the same sort of thing. These people haven't changed. They're still sinners. They're still the same sort of people. This has been... Well, it's been the condition of their hearts, not just from Egypt, but even before that, if the Lord is going to expand it to the full weight of history. This is just repetitive history once more. It's not that new. They've been doing this. They've been forsaking me. They've been serving other gods. And now you just get to experience alongside me. The Apostle Paul writes as he describes uh, his experience of ministry that he is filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. That's a strange thing. Because I think any Christian would want to say that there's nothing lacking in the sufferings of Jesus for the sake of our salvation. Yes and amen, Paul doesn't deny that at all. But what he's giving a word or a phrase to is the reality that if Jesus was still here and he was yet to have died... God's people would still kill him. They would still exert hatred and sin against him. 
they would still pierce his hands and pierce his feet and pierce his brow and curse him and wag their heads. They would still deride him. They would still not account him. And so Paul says, I'm filling up what is lacking. I'm taking all the spare ammunition, all the extra hatred that's being cast against the ministry because it's cast against Christ. And he is still saving sinners, the sinners who he died for, who are yet in their sins and who are being redeemed. And that's something of what's being said here to Samuel. He did it to me, and now you're joining me in the weight of their sinfulness and the effect of it. It's in your life now. And then in verse 9, he gives him a charge. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So again, what's the offense of worldliness? It's against God. It's an attack against him, against his character, and against his rule. Because the truth that you can tell from this passage of Scripture is that the people of Israel have always had a king, a king that is high and lifted up, a king that's heavenly, a king that is holy, a king that is him in himself the person of God, a king who, whenever he speaks, makes the law of the land from the phrase, Thus saith the Lord in infallible perfection, and who is ruled over them by shepherds in the form of of judges, and that these people with worldly hearts, when they say they want to be just like the world, they reject him and his promises and his rule. The offense of worldliness is the rejecting of God himself. This ought to stand for us as a huge rebuke. We live in a worldly age just like they lived. We live in a culture that has unique ways of displaying worldliness. It puts it in our pockets and sends us buzz uh, notifications at all hours of the day or night to where you want to take a hammer to these foolish smartphones. We have it printed in not just vibrant colors, but accurate reflections and photographs all over. We've invented uh, clothing that's scarcely clothing. It's something along the Lines of dental floss. It's, it's everywhere. There's worldliness and culture just thrust upon us. And it pierces into the heart of Christians. And again and again and again we look and we think and we say, well, if the church doesn't seem effective and if we seem weird and if the world hates us, the world hates us for how we raise our families, if the world hates us for how we speak, if the world hates us even for our, our, our joy and our happiness in this life, if the world hates us for sanctifying the Lord's Day, if the world hates us for the way we dress, Maybe we need to change and be a little bit more like the world and just calm down a little bit in our religiosity. But if we are a people called by his name and separated and sanctified by the blood of Jesus, we're called to something different, something that reflects him. And if we reject that and if we live a life of worldliness, we reject him. The church should not look like the world. The world should be becoming like the church. This last thing, and then we'll close. Whenever the Lord commissions him in verse 9, it's a simple thing, and it gives some good expression of the ministerial and declarative work of church officers. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways 
of the king who shall reign over them. There's a gentleness here. He's saying to Samuel this, you go, you listen to what they say, you respect them, and you still speak and warn. The power that you have in the ministry is that you declare the truth of God over them and in their lives, and you compel them by the moral power of the word of God. That remains today. What is the antidote of worldliness? What is the great help of the church? What is the most countercultural thing that is possible to be done in this world? It is to take up the word of God in the hands of any person and to simply be able to read it and to preface those words in the scripture with, Thus saith the Lord. The antidote for worldliness is the voice of God in the ears of sinners that alone with the power of the Holy Spirit can change the hearts of mankind and can sustain the church under fire. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures, Lord, for the weight and the power of the word. Lord, that it is by your word that you created all things. And Lord, it remains that you sustain the souls of every man by your word. Father, we ask that you would help us as a church to stand firm. That, Lord, we would love your word and live after you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.